Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. So go to it, find uh, 2 Samuel in your Bibles, or you can look at the screen behind me here and uh, and follow along. I'm going to read that for us. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to read the chapter for us. It's 27 verses, not too long, but uh, let me read that for us, okay? Alright, this is God's word. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen in our death. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also, de- also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man uh, who told, uh, told him this said, By chance I happened to be on, on Mount uh, Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were uh, close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him, and I killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crowns uh, that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. And I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. And for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I'm, I'm a son of a sojourner. I'm an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And after David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it, And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, from the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Your daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. 
Very pleasant have you been to me. Your extraordinary, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word alone remains forever. Let me pray for us real quick. Uh, Father God, we uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, tonight is a heavy passage, Lord, we trust that you are a God that can help us, and you can convict us where we need conviction, you can comfort us where we need comfort. Would you do? Would you do that? Would you help us to see Jesus, Jesus afresh as we lean on you, as we trust in you, as we cry out to you? Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your steadfast love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Dylan, am I on, or is it, is it off? It's okay, it's off. I'll, uh, I'll talk loud. It's on. I think, I think it's on. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to talk loud, okay? Um, all right, look, really, welcome to another week of RUF. This is your first time here. We're really glad you're here. Uh, we, we really believe this, and we say this at RUF, that you're never so good that you stand outside the need of God's grace, while at the same time you are never so bad that you stand outside the reach of His grace. And we really believe that. We hope that you come and experience that when you come to large group and you get involved in our small groups and you come and interact with the community of RUF. So we're glad we're here. Um, okay, so if you are uh, here with us for the first time, we're picking back up and continuing our series this spring as we make our way through the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. As we examine and study this life of this man and this king named David. Right? And as a refresher for us, at this point in biblical history, Okay, all right. God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, is in a very interesting leadership transition from judges to kingship, right? From, from kings, I mean, from judges to kings. And we studied kind of three major figures throughout First and Second Samuel: the prophet Samuel, King Saul, and King David. And we started this semester in First Samuel chapter sixteen, where we're inter- where we were introduced to David. And have followed some very significant moments of his life. Okay, with his anointing from God through Samuel as the future king. The slaying of Goliath. The godly friendship between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. But also we witnessed the the spiraling downfall of Saul's kingship. His self-destructive nature and his choices, which leads to to Saul's hatred for David, which sets him on this bloodthirsty warpath to wanting to kill David. However, two weeks ago, we studied in 1 Samuel chapter, chapters 21 and 24 that even in the midst of temptation and suffering, David has a chance to kill Saul twice. But instead, he extends Saul mercy by placing his life in the hands of a God in whom he believes is both just and sovereign. And tonight we step into 2 Samuel chapter 1. And it's important to note here that 1st and 2nd Samuel were originally one book, okay, in the original Hebrew. But then they were separated when they were translated into the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so 1st Samuel covers about a 94-year period from the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul. So so I want you to think as we step into 2nd Samuel, okay, think of 2nd Samuel chapter 1 like the intermission of a drama. Right, this is the continuation of one story. But with the death of Saul, we enter into this new era of Judah's reign in the life of King David. But before David's exaltation, what we are going to learn tonight is that he must go through lamentation. 
that the start of David's reign begins with death. And tonight we'll see how David responds to that. So I want you to, two things tonight that we've learned about godly lament. If you're a note taker, here you go, okay? Two things. The need for lament and the heart for lament. Okay, the need for lament and the heart for lament. So first, the need for lament. Right, our passage this evening, it really does follow on the heels of the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, where we witness the tragic, tragic death of King Saul. Right, chapters 30 and 31 of 1 Samuel tell us that David, he defeats the Amalekites, who had plundered his own town at Ziklag in the southern region of Israel. But while that is happening, in the northern region of Israel, the Philistines are attacking Saul and Jonathan and the Israelites at, at, near Jezreel. At, at Mount Gilboa. And in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 3 through 4, it tells us when the Philistines defeated the Israelites, it tells us this that the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust through me with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Right, a very tragic ending and sad ending for, for the life of Saul. And our passage this evening picks up where it's left off. But instead, it begins with, the, with actually a lie of the account of Saul's death. Because as David waits to hear the news about the war in the north, right, the writer tells us that an Amalekite, who has the appearance of someone who is mourning, comes to meet David at Ziklag with a report of Saul and Jonathan's death. Right? And with suspicion, David kind of questions this Amalekite, who lies about how he killed King Saul with the expectation that David was going to rejoice and be actually happy that Saul was dead. And it was clear that this Amalekite he was trying to angle for a job in the new administration under David. But the opposite happens. Instead, David responds in mourning and lament over Saul's death. And the Amalekite condemns himself with his own life and is executed. You see, even though the Amalekite had lied about how Saul had actually died, he did tell the truth that the Israelites had been defeated and that Saul and Jonathan were dead. So the very beginning of David's reign begins with loss and death. And this is where this passage confronts us tonight. Um, not recommending it. But uh, if you if you have happened to see the Barbie movie, okay, uh, starring Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie, right? It, it is set in this uh, utopian Barbie world where where everything is supposed to be perfect and Barbie is perfectly happy. But soon, what you begin to learn is that Barbie actually kind of like gains a conscience. And she starts having these intrusive thoughts about the world and about herself. And she starts noticing her flaws. And uh, th there's this amazing scene at the beginning of the movie where they're having, like, this raging dance party at her house. And everyone's, like, choreographed, like, dancing, like, in a circle, smiling and, like, looking at each other. And they're all telling each other about, like, how perfect everything is. But suddenly, like, Barbie just blurts out, like, you guys ever think about dying? And the music, like, cuts. And everyone stares at Barbie, and there's like this really awkward silence. And then she like 
kind of stands there and is like, I mean, I'm dying to dance. And like the music like ramps back up and everyone starts dancing again. And everyone just kind of like ignores her comment. Like, I think, <laughs> I think all of us can relate to that on different levels. Right? Because on the one hand, it is just easier to inoculate the really challenging realities of this life by pretending that real loss and death just doesn't exist. And our temptation when we are faced with the reality of death itself, like the habit of swiping from one reel to another, we are expected to move past it or replace it with something else as quickly as possible. You see, sometimes even in Christianity, we are expected to slap just a plastic smile on our face and just plow ahead. And if you don't, then you're actually kind of considered weird or like a second-class citizen. And when you buy into the lie that to be a Christian is that you must always be happy and chirpy, that happiness equals godliness, that is actually a version of the prosperity gospel. Because what happens is that you begin to believe that the measure of God's love for you depends on me sustaining a happy disposition at all times. Yes, it is very true that we grieve with, we do not grieve without hope. That is true. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that doesn't mean that a Christian is someone who is always happy, even in the midst of unbearable grief. Because that's not how the Bible speaks about grief and lament over suffering and death. Expressing grief is very different than utter despair. Look at David's immediate response in verse 12, 11 and 12. That when he hears Saul and Jonathan's death, how does he respond? He took his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for David and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. See, grief was necessary and it could not wait. And what happens when grief doesn't go away? One author said this, that grief remains. Sorrow is not merely a sad event, but it's a continuing process. Grief not only erupts, but it abides. Grief not only erupts, but it abides. And some of you here tonight are very familiar with that story. That grief is an ongoing process that you can't control, or neither can you predict how it's going to appear or how it will come and go. And because grief abides, there must be some mechanism, some procedures by which God's people can express that grief. And this is what David does in this passage. That in writing this song of lament in verses 17 through 27, he provides a personal and a public vehicle by which Israel can continue her ongoing mourning over Saul and Jonathan and Israel's army. You see, the Bible is very clear and honest about the reality of death. And it actually has a very developed understanding for why death exists due to the rebellion of sin back in Genesis 3. And although the Bible tells us that death is not the way that things are supposed to be, by God's grace, he provides for us a way to respond to sin and to suffering and to death. God gives us the necessary language 
of lament. What does it mean to lament? Right, the, the scriptures, if, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the scriptures are saturated with lament. Right, there is an entire book of the Bible dedicated to lamenting, literally called the book of lamentations. And the song book of the Bible, the Psalms, which is the most books of the Bible uh, in the Bible, there, there are around 65 of 150 psalms that are simply and merely about lament. We see it in Job, we see it in the major and minor prophets all throughout the Old Testament, and we even see it in our Lord Jesus himself when he models it for us, when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lamentation has always been a part of God's people, always. Therefore, to be a Christian tonight is to be one who laments. To be a Christian tonight is to be one who laments. See, lamentation, it is different than, than merely grumbling or complaining, which is normally and usually always self-focused and usually prompting self-pity. But lamenting is always directed toward God, taking your honesty, your anger, your confusion, your unspeakable pain, and placing it at His feet. See, one author defines lament as this, a prayer of pain to God that leads to trust. A prayer of pain to God that leads to trust. That lament is an honest wailing of the heart before a God who hears, who listens, and who responds to our cries. You need to hear tonight. That as a Christian, it is okay to be sad and to grieve over the broken and the unnatural things of this world. Actually, in fact, you're commanded to lament in your life. Not only do we see in this passage in verse 18, David says that this lament is to be taught to the people of Judah. Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's worth asking tonight, is there room in your life for lamentation? When was the last time that you lamented over the brokenness of this world? The, the lost souls on this campus? When, when was the last time you cried out to God, lamenting over the own brokenness of your heart? See, see when you grieve, what tends to replace Christ's comfort for you? Because we all grieve. And we're all looking for comfort somewhere. But what tends to replace Christ's comfort for you? One author said, if we, if we don't find comfort in Christ in our grief, we will inevitably find our comfort in something else. That when grief is present in your life, what numbs the pain of searing loss for you? Is it the distraction of sports? Is it the binging of your new show? Is it the control of pornography? Is it the constant busyness of your life and your schedule? Is it your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Is what numbs you, numbs the grief, drug or alcohol abuse? Is it the thought of having a comfortable life and one day living in a comfortable house? Is it the thought that as long as my image is upheld, then I'll be okay? 
Our grief may be ongoing, but we serve a God whose grace never runs out. What is it in your life that replaces you from drawing confidently to the throne of God's grace? That we may receive mercy and grace from a Father who rejoices in helping in our time of need. That when He sees you and He hears you in your suffering, a God who draws near to the broken parted and who saves the crushed spirit, that is His character. Those are His promises. Have you joined God's people in the practice of crying out to God in your grief? Is there room in your life for limitation? And our second point leads us to this, is the heart of lament. You see, what David does is he writes out a song of lament. Okay? And normally what you find throughout the Bible is that songs of lament are expressions of thoughtful grief. It's an expression that can be written, read, learned, practiced, and repeated. That was the purpose of it. And we have to ask ourselves tonight, right about the content of this lament. But you say, okay, I mean, we've been studying David, we've been studying about Saul. Like, Austin, I can understand David's lamenting over Jonathan and Israel's army, but Saul? <laughs> like, really? David laments over Saul? He laments for his enemy? The man who has tried to kill him multiple times? Why a lament? An occasion like this deserves a song like Sweet Victory from Spongebob, right? If you know, you know. But like, David should, set, should have said, bring out the trumpets. Bring out the finest wines. Saul is dead. It's time to party. But the opposite happens. In verses 19 through 20, 21, right? You see, the lament starts off by declaring Israel's glory that it's been slain. And the mighty have fallen. It's a spiritual defeat. It's not only a, a national defeat, but it's a spiritual defeat. Because when God's people are defeated or disgraced, so is God himself. Right? In verses 22 through 23, what we see is that David writes this lament to put Saul and Jonathan in the best of light. Right? They didn't go down without a fight. That's what David is saying here. They were both great military leaders, and they stood by one another. And we know that David loved Jonathan, but he also proves here that he loved Saul too. Even through all the crazy persecution, David shows his kingship and his integrity that even to the death, he refrains from disrespecting Saul, God's anointed one. And then finally in verses 24 through 27, David yet again praises Saul. But what we find is that he saves his last words for his greatest loss, the friendship of Jonathan. Right? David expresses the extraordinary love of Jonathan's faithfulness and loyalty, surpassing the love of women. Okay, it needs to be said here, it would be wildly incorrect to interpret this as some ungodly homosexual relationship. Right? Context and letting scripture interpret scripture is very important. Right? The comparison between Jonathan's love and a wife's love is not the point of sexuality here, but it's of covenant loyalty and sacrifice. Matthew Henry says this, one commentator. says, David had reason to say Jonathan's love to him was wonderful. Surely never was the like for a man to love one who he knew 
was to take the crown over his head and be faithful to his rival. This far surpassed the high degree of conjugal affection and constancy. In other words, Jonathan's friendship is so extensive and is so expansive that he gave up his crown and his life for David. Because he knew that God had chosen David to be the anointed one. You see, Jonathan had a love for God. And therefore, he had a love for David. Jonathan could have easily been an unsung hero in, in, in the life of Israel. But David chooses to lament him for all of Israel to sing and remember. That's the kind of friendship that we celebrate. That's the kind of friendship that as Christians we're after. We long for self-denial, self-abasing love. One that says, I'm putting my interests before your own. That was the heart of Jonathan towards David. Because he had a heart for understanding that it was God himself who chose them. So what do we do with this? What does David's lament over Saul and Jonathan and Israel teach us? You see, David's reign begins with death before exaltation. That instead of rejoicing at Saul's death, David expresses his grief through tearful lamentation. And that matters because David's response to death, it only points us to Jesus' greater response to death. On March 27th, it will be a year from the day that the Nashville shooting occurred at, at the Covenant School at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm not sure who here has heard of that or who has heard that. I think most of you have. But in that shooting, when that occurred, three kids and three adults were murdered. And one of the victims was a nine-year-old girl named Hallie Scruggs. And her dad is named uh, Chad Scruggs. And Chad is actually the senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville. And on that day when Hallie was murdered, the media asked Chad about Hallie. And this is what, Hallie had, and this is what Chad had to say. He told the media this. We are heartbroken. She was such a gift. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus, who will raise her to life once again. Let this bring you comfort tonight. That whatever grief over death that you will you have or will have, Jesus' grief is greater. Whatever loss that you have incurred, Jesus incurred a greater loss. Whatever loneliness that you have experienced or will one day experience, Jesus has experienced it more. Whatever pain you have endured, Jesus has endured it longer. His grief was greater. He endured more pain. He incurred more loss. He experienced more loneliness so that one day all of God's people would never have to. And so that whatever tears that you have cried on this earth, one day he will wipe them away forever. You see, like David, Jesus wept and lamented when he encountered death. He's the king who saw the distress of Mary and Martha, weeping over his friend Lazarus in John 11, that brought him to tears. He has borne our griefs and he carries our sorrows. 
He's the king who was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He not only wept over death, but he went to the cross to free us from it. He's the king who not only died on the cross, but who was resurrected from the grave. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, the lamenting king, who not only wept over death, he not only died to free us from it, but he triumphed over it. And he promises that one day he will destroy it forever. That's the resurrecting hope that the Scruggs family and that all of us cling to this evening if you are in Christ. And Christians, we believe that that day is coming. Truly. It is coming. If you are at a loss tonight, you want to know where a great place to start in lamenting? A short prayer? It's joining the cry of the Bible. The prayer of all God's children. It's joining the lament of all God's people throughout all time that says... Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, you promise us that when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to be a people who lament well, who grieve well, who sing your promises, who pray your truths, who hope in your resurrection. As we know, we believe, as we're about to sing, that in the dark of night, before the dawn, our souls be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh, how long, O oh, God of Jacob, be our strength. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.